What if I told you that the confines of a hemodialysis center aren't the only lifelines for those navigating the rough seas of end-stage kidney disease? It's a staggering fact that as of 2020, over 23,000 Canadians found themselves tethered to the rhythm of chronic dialysis, their lives synchronized with the demanding cadence of in-center hemodialysis. It comes with burdensome scheduling constraints, a freeze on daily activities during dialysis, and a stifling leash of travel restrictions that tightens the horizon of personal freedom. The gold standard for tackling end-stage kidney disease? Transplants. But what if you're not the perfect candidate? What if you are the person at the back of the line, counting days, months, or even years in anticipation? The despairing picture of perpetual waiting might seem overwhelming, but let me tell you, there's another path paved with hope. Today, our patient is on peritoneal dialysis, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled, Fluid Matters, a practical dive into peritoneal dialysis. Time for a minute physiology. Imagine the kidneys as the body's vigilant sanitation workers, tirelessly filtering out water and metabolic byproducts that we simply don't need. These organs play a crucial role in maintaining essential functions, ensuring optimal blood pressure, preserving the delicate balance of water and electrolytes, and keeping our bodies pristine by eliminating wastes and toxins. However, when the kidneys falter, it's like a city sanitation strike. Water and toxic products built up, causing an array of complications such as electrolyte disturbances, volume overload, acid-base imbalance, and uremia. Now, here's where peritoneal dialysis steps in. Picture this process as bringing the cleanup crew directly into the body. A hypertonic solution, also known as dialysate, is introduced into the peritoneal cavity through a catheter that goes through the abdomen and sits in the pelvis inside the peritoneum. The diacylate, full of glucose, then acts as a magnet, attracting fluid from the blood into the cavity by osmosis. Simultaneously, unwanted guests like urea and potassium diffuse down their concentration gradient into this fluid. After a specific dwell time, the fluid, now loaded with wastes, is evacuated, making way for a fresh batch of dialysate to continue the cleanup. Please note, while we're touching on the basics here, the nuances of various peritoneal dialysis methods stretch far beyond the scope of this episode. Nonetheless, understanding this fundamental process underscores the essential role peritoneal dialysis can play in managing kidney disease. Before we dive in, let's highlight important safety measures. Whenever you encounter a patient, always assess their stability. Check their GCS, ABCs, and vitals. It's important to look for signs of infectious complications and volume overload. And remember, you're not alone. If in doubt, seek help. Your friendly neighborhood nephrologist is a fantastic resource waiting to be tapped. All right, so now that we've discussed basic physiology and acute safety, let's get into complications. The potential roadblocks that can crop up in peritoneal dialysis fall into four categories. One, issues with the catheter. 
two, complications with the fluid, known as dialysate, three, infection, and four, problems concerning the peritoneum itself. Let's kick off with complications related to the catheter. The process of peritoneal dialysis hinges on the dialysis catheter, which is positioned within the peritoneal cavity. The catheter isn't immune to issues. It may leak, become obstructed, or even become infected. Take pericatheter leaks, for instance, which usually manifest within the first four weeks post-catheter insertion. Prevention here is key. Inserting the catheter well before dialysis is needed provides a two-week healing window for the abdomen. If dialysis is urgent, ensure that the patient lies flat during the dwell time to increase intra-abdominal pressure and the chance of a leak. In case of a pericatheter leak, it's best to pause peritoneal dialysis or switch to a nighttime regimen with the patient lying flat. If the leak persists, it may require catheter replacement. However, it's worth noting that a pericatheter leak seldom warrants an emergency department visit and can be managed in the outpatient setting. Catheter obstruction typically stems from constipation. When the intestines are full and distended, they can start forming borders to small, isolated pockets. These pockets can fill with peritoneal dialysate, but may not be accessed by the catheter. Distended intestines can also put pressure and kink the catheter. Other causes include migration of the catheter tip or internal obstruction within the catheter itself. So, if you suspect an obstruction, start asking about bowel habits. If constipation is a culprit, introduce laxatives with a target of 2 to 3 bowel movements per day. In the absence of constipation, your next step should be an abdominal x-ray to visualize the catheter and rule out any other blockages. Ideally, the catheter should be situated low in the pelvis. If it's migrated, repositioning may be required. If these issues are excluded, you can resort to a thrombolytic agent, similar to unblocking a PICC line. These agents are particularly effective for catheter lumen obstructions, which impede flushing and draining. Now, let's talk about catheter infections. They typically manifest as redness and purulent discharge around the exit site. Be sure to take swabs and initiate oral antibiotics, focusing on staph orage coverage for 14 days to prevent peritonitis. If the patient has a history of pseudomonas-related catheter infections, ensure your antibiotics cover this as well. Don't forget, patients receiving antibiotics should also receive prophylaxis against fungal peritonitis. Moving on, let's consider the issues associated with the dialysate. The most common complications tied to dialysate are weight gain and high glucose levels, which can exacerbate diabetes. Glucose is a primary osmotic agent in peritoneal dialysis, drawing fluid out of the body. However, over time, the body absorbs this glucose, leading to these complications. It's crucial to advise your patients on appropriate diet and physical activity to counteract the hyperglycemia caused by glucose absorption. Encourage moderate but not excessive water intake to prevent hypervolemia and enable the nephrologist to use dialysates with lower glucose concentrations to maintain euvolemia. Certain oral antihyperglycemic agents could also be beneficial in this context. Next on our complication list is insufficient ultrafiltration. In some cases, peritoneal dialysis may not filter enough fluid to keep the patient euvolemic. If not addressed promptly, patients might present with pulmonary edema or severe peripheral edema, 
even while sticking to their prescribed dialysis regimen. So, if a patient on peritoneal dialysis exhibits hypoxia and signs of pulmonary edema, consider insufficient ultrafiltration as a potential culprit. In some cases, acute pulmonary edema due to inadequate ultrafiltration may necessitate urgent hemodialysis, depending on the severity of hypoxia. In such scenarios, get a nephrologist involved promptly, and remember to optimize diuretics if the patient still produces urine. Contrastingly, ultrafiltration failure, a condition where the peritoneal membrane cannot ultrafilter regardless of the solution used, calls for an absolute shift to hemodialysis. Here's our second safety tip. Patients already on peritoneal dialysis may still require emergency hemodialysis, especially if they've missed treatments or have insufficient ultrafiltration. Keep the AEIOU mnemonic in mind for acute indications for dialysis, acidosis, electrolyte disturbances like hyperkalemia, intoxication by substances, volume overload, and uremia. If your patient exhibits any of these symptoms and medical management isn't effective, consult your local nephrologist for urgent hemodialysis. Lastly, let's discuss hydrothorax, a rare but important complication of peritoneal dialysis. Dialysate, once introduced into the peritoneum, can sneak into the pleural space through the lymphatic system or through diaphragmatic defects. If a patient recently initiated on peritoneal dialysis presents with dyspnea and a pleural effusion, consider hydrothorax in your differential diagnosis. Diagnosis is typically confirmed through a thoracentesis, which reveals pleural fluid, with extremely high glucose and low protein levels. Should you encounter this, it's advisable to suspend peritoneal dialysis and consult a nephrologist immediately. And now, let's delve into problems related to the peritoneum. Encapsulating peritoneal sclerosis, a rare yet serious complication, tends to occur with long-term peritoneal dialysis, generally beyond five years. This condition is characterized by the peritoneum turning scarred and thickened due to repeated exposure to high glucose dialysate. Symptoms include anorexia, nausea, vomiting, weight loss, anemia, and low albumin levels. Diagnosing this condition is challenging. It typically involves aligning symptoms of intestinal obstruction and peritoneal fibrosis with distinct imaging findings. The only definitive way to diagnose this condition is through a laparotomy, a procedure rarely performed due to its high risk. Once diagnosed, continuing peritoneal dialysis is not an option. Next up, Peritoneal dialysis peritonitis. It is among the most serious complications of peritoneal dialysis. If someone on peritoneal dialysis presents with diffuse abdominal pain or cloudy peritoneal fluid, ruling out peritonitis is paramount. Such patients should undergo dialysis fluid analysis and culture, unless a clear alternative cause is evident. The diagnosis is confirmed if at least two of the following criteria are met. One, Clinical symptoms aligning with peritonitis, such as abdominal pain and or cloudy dialysis effluent. 2. Dialysis effluent white cell count exceeding 100 ml with more than 50% polymorphonuclear leukocytes. Or 3. Positive dialysis effluent culture. 
Once the fluid is collected, initiate antibiotics that cover gram-positive organisms with a first-generation cephalosporin or vancomycin and gram-negative organisms with a third-generation cephalosporin or an aminoglycoside. The exact antibiotic selection will depend on your center and local resistant patterns. If in doubt, consult your nephrologist. Antibiotics can be administered through the peritoneum, preferably with each dialysis exchange or systematically in the acute setting. Now for our medicine minute. Peritoneal dialysis, which primarily is used to treat end-stage kidney disease, has also been employed in cases of acute kidney injury. In disaster scenarios, where numerous people suffer from crush injuries and medical infrastructure is damaged, peritoneal dialysis is technically straightforward and does not require electricity or tap water. Its swift initiation is a boon in such situations. However, it does have its limitations. It cannot be used in participants with abdominal or thoracic injuries, demands large amounts of sterilized dialysate, and complications may arise due to the unhygienic field conditions. Moreover, it's less efficient at removing potassium compared to intermittent hemodialysis. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Fluid Matters, a practical dive into peritoneal dialysis. Please check out our website, theinternetwork.com, for an associated infographic. This episode was written by Dr. Sharif Akbari, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Bogdan Momsiu, nephrology, and Dr. Stephen Montague, general internal medicine. The internet work was created by Alison Lai and co-developed by Zara Morali and Leah Kernopoulos. This episode was recorded by Zara Morali and produced by Margaret Sun. Music by Laxman's Vantha Mohan. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. <laughs>